Well, good afternoon, good evening, welcome to the Olivier Theatre. Uh, my name's Dan Rebellato, and I'm uh, sitting on the set of Edward II with the director of that production, uh, Joe Gil Hill Gibbons. Um, so, Joe, the first thing I want to ask you is just how this production came about. Is this a play you had long wanted to do, or was it something that was brought to you as a project? Uh, no, it was, um, it was brought to me as a project, actually. Um, uh, Nick Heitner, who, who I'm sure most of you know runs the National Theatre, he had directed this play... I can't remember exactly when. He did a production in the uh, 80s, I think it was, at the Manchester Royal Exchange. So it's a play that he'd known very well, and funnily enough, it had never been done at the National before. And uh, I'd been talking to him for quite a while about uh, uh, maybe working here, and so he rang me up and said, what about Edward II? And uh, I didn't know it, actually, uh, and I'd never read it, so I had to read it very quickly. I was actually working on another show at the time, so I had to buy a copy copy frantically and, and read it. And I started reading it actually at about, I don't know, um, 9.30, 10 o'clock at night. And, you know, I'm sure many of you will know this, when you pick up a Elizabethan, an early modern play for the first time, they're uh, a fascinating read, but not always an easy read. So I sort of pick this up at 9.30 at night, think I've got to call Nick Heitner back tomorrow and at least say something about it and am I going to understand it and am I going to fall asleep and, and, um, and I was actually surprised on, on a first read actually how accessible it was actually mm -hmm. you know it's partly a quality of the language which is and the verse which is actually quite different to Shakespeare it's very regular but it's very um, punchy and very direct actually it's not um, uh, excessively florid, it's very, um, uh, um, yeah, as I say, direct and, and to the point. And also the, the story, um, you know, there's something about it which has a real simplicity for all the twists and turns of it. So, I, you know, I was relieved to say that I can't remember when I finished it or at least got to about the end of Act 3. I thought, oh, actually, this is quite good. I'm, I'm relieved because <laughs> I can ring up and say, oh, yes, I'd really like to do it rather than awkwardly having to ring up and say it's not for me or whatever. I mean, you, you, you mentioned the, the clarity of it, and I think um, it, this is thought to be Marlowe's last play, and it's, there's often a, a, a thought that he's developed this new kind of, of clarity in this. But there are other things about this play that, are, that must be, for a director, huge challenges. I mean, it covers an enormous historical geographical range. It's a history play, but then it's got characters like death in it and possibly Satan and so on so it's 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 genre is quite weird um it, it, you know there's a, there's a lot going on how do you kind of get a handle on this kind of this kind of play well it, it takes quite a lot of time actually it's, mm. it's spend quite a lot of time on it is 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 the simple answer you know I um kind of on and off on and off have been working on preparing the production for, for over a year. You know, it was right. programmed quite a long way in advance. And, uh, I mean, one of the first things I do is, is, is try to get a really strong team to collaborate mm. um, with. So uh, there's a dramaturg called Zoe Svensson, who I uh, worked with on it, an assistant director called Jeff James, and the set designer Lizzie Clacken. Mm. And it, at the start, it was, it was us as a... As, um, 
a foursome looking at the play and talking about a lot. You know, we read it a lot, we talk about it a lot. Uh, one of the things I tend to do very early on is write out uh, the play kind of scene by scene or chunk of action by chunk of action on index cards. And so one of the things, you know, maybe two or three weeks into working on it, is you have a very, very long, you have to get a big room in the National yeah. to lay all the cards out on the floor. You have this very, very long kind of, kind of timeline of the play, but it's sort of a map of the structure of the play, mm -hmm. and try to look at it and try to see what different stories you can find in there, what shapes and what, what patterns you can find. So we spend a lot of time analysing it, talking about it, and then the second phase, uh, it's a real uh, privilege working at the National because, uh, many of you will know this, there's a building down the road um, on the cut uh, called the National Theatre Studio. And we got a lot of process time there to, to develop the production. Uh, you know, when, when we were putting together the production, I sort of thought, okay, well, I'll ask for a lot of workshop time, and they probably won't give me all the workshop time. They'll probably say, well, you can have a bit less, but, but I might as well go in big. And actually, they just said, yeah, you can have all this time. So, you know, on and off, we spent about a month right. at the studio, <coughs> uh, often with a small group of actors. And that's great because it's a different type of work on the play, preparing it, is um, uh, uh, you get to work practically, you know, and uh, um, we get lots of props and costumes from the, the uh, National Theatre stores and fill the room with them, and, and we play around. Right. Um, I'm going to ask some questions about the production decisions. I'm assuming that quite a lot of you are, are going to see the show this evening or quite soon, uh, so we're going to try and avoid spoilers, but they, that, that may not be completely possible. So let me let me ask the the first thing. I suppose it's about the the kind of setting of the play because mm -hmm. it's it's certainly not a sixteenth century type production. Mm -hmm. It's not set in the sort of historic fourteenth century. Mm -hmm. It's not entirely modernised either. You've mm -hmm. done something I think very interesting with a kind of historical period. Mm -hmm. Do you want to just talk me through a little bit what the the choices are there about design location? Sure. Yeah. I mean the look the main stimulation for everything in the production comes from the play. So you start off by looking at the play. And, you know, with these early modern plays, and this one in particular, their relationship to time and setting is really interesting, and it's really complex in a way. You know, the, the play is obviously written about a king from the late Middle Ages, but written by Marlowe in the Elizabethan times. And when you look at the play on the page, it is, of course, as one would expect, a strange mixture of these two mm. time periods. You know, we have a, a, a strange, I find it quite strange, um, theatrical convention, you know, often called naturalism, mm. which has come about in our theatres and is still quite prevalent today, where you kind of pick uh, a setting and uh, you make a little set which realistically uh, depicts that setting, you know, like a, a photograph or something, and you put that on the stage, and a bit like we are now, you turn out all the lights on the audience, and the audience have to be quiet, and they pretend they're not there, <laughs> and we pretend that we're looking into this real location, uh, and, and watching it as if it's happening like real life, you know. But of course, with the Elizabethan plays, they're not written in that way, you know. Um, for a start, they're written in a poetic 
verse form. So it's not supposed to be a kind of realistic depiction of um, uh, uh, the late Middle Ages that Marlowe's putting on stage. You know, he's telling that story of Edward II, but in the language and the references and the jokes and et cetera, et cetera, it's a strange mixture of details from the medieval times and, and the time that Marlowe was writing in. Mm. And, you know, in terms of where it's set, in a way, I guess, it's kind of set in, in the theatre. I mean, it's hard for us to know, isn't it, what Elizabethan playgoers thought, but I, I would bet my house on the fact that th there was no, uh, no idea uh, existed that uh, it's kind of like naturalism. Like, you know, in the Elizabethan times, they wouldn't uh, stand in the Elizabethan theatre and sort of try to imagine that they were anywhere else but a theatre. You know, that is, that is the setting of it. And it's kind of interesting with these plays that they not only acknowledge the fact that they're in a theater, but they use the form of theater and the fact that there's an audience and the fact that they're actors on stage as a mechanism to tell the story. So these were all ideas that we brought to this production, you know. Firstly, the fact that it was a mixture of time periods. And of course, now in this production, it's a mixture of um, the, uh, the, the Edward II's time in the Middle Ages and Marlowe's time in Elizabethan times and our present, uh, the present day, today, you know, which is where the creative team and the actors and the audience come from. And for me to sort of pretend uh, it's anything else would kind of be crazy. Um, so it was very deliberate that it's a mixture of these different time periods. That seems to, 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 to fit the play to me. And, um, and also... Uh, it's very important f for me in this production that it's kind of situated in a theatre. Um, you know, you'll, you, those of you who've seen it or those of you who are seeing it tonight, you know, you'll see when you come in that the whole auditorium is lit up. We've, we have these um, uh, trusses with lights on over the audience, uh, which aren't normally in here. These, they kind of look a bit like strange chandeliers and they're on so you can see all the, all the audience but also we have the shutters at the back of the stage open so you can see as much of the Olivier as you, as you possibly can. So we're really acknowledging the fact that we're in uh, a theatre and it feels like it's in that kind of uh, context uh, where we're saying look this is a story, this is make-believe, uh, uh, this is artifice, um, that actually you can mix time periods in a way that feels uh, much more effective, you know, whereas if you have a kind of naturalistic, realistic room that's kind of Middle Ages time and someone walks in with a machine gun or something, you know, we've all seen those productions, but they, you know, they, it always feels a bit awkward or uncomfortable mm. for me, whereas the, the mixture of the three time periods is, is, is really important. And it's, it's kind of playful as well, isn't it? Because there's a sense in which uh, I, I felt that some of the juxtapositions of contemporary technology with Marlowe's text uh, has a kind of tongue-in-cheek almost quality to it. Was that, some, was that a deliberate decision or was that something you discovered in rehearsal? Uh, I suppose that was kind of deliberate, yeah. yeah. I mean, uh, I mean, there's two things I'd say about that. One is, you know, when I first started looking at the play, um, and as I described, you know, earlier, it, it takes a long time to... To, to work out the production and put things together. And I certainly don't read it and go, ah, oh, OK, I have a vision in my head of what this should be. Um, so it's a, it's a long process of kind of putting it together. And when I started, I kind of thought, OK, well, 
The one thing we're not going to do is, you know, set it in the Middle Ages. This would be crazy, you know, that, you know, we've seen these productions where people come on with sort of, you know, leather jerkins or whatever and chain mail and, and sort of say, you know, I am from the Middle Ages and you sort of think, no, you've, you're just out of RADA, you know, who are you trying to kid? <laughs> but, but of course, the more I looked at it and I spent a lot of time looking at the, the real history of Edward II, I probably ended up looking much more at the Middle Ages than Marlowe's time in the end. Of course, it's really fascinating, it's really interesting mm. and kind of irresistible. And there was something of the brutality of the, the medieval world um, uh, that, that I, I'd, I'd ended up wanting to put in the show, you know. Right. And, um, but, you know, and you'll see these characters that have these um, metal helmets on as if from suits of armour. Um, th and there's something about the, 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 these metal masks that they wear, but also the metal in the set and the grid over there, which somehow for me was expressive of the medieval times and, and, as I say, something about the violence and the brutality of those times. Yeah. But at the same time, you know, as I say, if you just have someone sort of clanking in in a suit of armour and we're expected to take this entirely seriously, mm. um, I, I think that's a bit silly, really. And in a way, for me, you have to acknowledge the contradictions in the time periods and even, as you say, sometimes play with them mm. in order to get through that into something more serious or with a good wind behind us profound maybe you know um you almost have to acknowledge the contradiction and play with the contradiction mm. in order to um to really then inhabit it and explore it you know whereas if you do it all with a straight face and sort of say you know here we are in the middle ages and right. I, I, I i can't really take it seriously so th you know there are little deliberate yeah. jokes in it which um well i put it this way for me those jokes are always there whether you acknowledge them or not you know right. when you have a production that is saying look this is really really this really is the middle ages you know so uh then it's there's always something abs absurd and right. silly in it so it's, there's always a there's always a playfulness or a madness in it and and i prefer to acknowledge it rather than right pretend there's no contradiction well one of the one of the sort of technological means i guess of 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 allowing those those technological juxtapositions to, to come out is spoiler alert video mm -hmm. that there is a, a certain amount of live video that takes mm -hmm. place in this and that and that works in a number of ways I think mm -hmm. I mean one is that that what you've just said the acknowledgement that we're in a theatre is heightened by that because the the video live video allows us access to backstage spaces to s other spaces around the National Theatre, which are instantly recognisable if you know this, this theatre. So th th that's happening. But also there's a kind of internal set on the stage that's not visible to the live audience entirely, mm -hmm. but is sort of explored through video. H uh, how did that kind of language uh, of theatricality emerge? Well, the, the, the language sort of developed and changed as, as we as we worked on the, the piece, I was very lucky to work with a very, very brilliant uh, video designer called Chris Kondek, who is an American video designer who uh, has worked with many brilliant uh, American artists. He worked with the, the Worcester Group, some of you may know. He worked with the Worcester Group for, for quite a long time. And, and now he lives in Berlin and mainly works on theatre and opera in um, Germany. And I worked with Chris on it. And very, I, I suppose the first impulse of wanting to use video in the show, which, I, which, which did come quite early, was about thinking about the mix of uh, public and private in the play. 
You know, there's this, it's this play where, I mean, the public and private features throughout the play, but maybe, you know, most famously or, or, or most, uh, the, the, the form in which it's most present in the play is that you have this private, intimate, uh, romantic sexual relationship between the king and his favourite, Piers Gaveston, which, and you, uh, you see scenes with them, uh, one scene in particular where it's just the two of them on stage, and it is a, uh, an intense personal relationship between these two men. But of course, for uh, a whole set of reasons, there's a ramifications that come, ripples that come from this private relationship that affect the whole kingdom and even beyond the kingdom. And so you go from these little scenes about marriages or relationships, romantic relationships, suddenly into these public scenes where you have these big dust-ups between the king and uh, his nobles, you know, and all the nobles, uh, a lot of them are named after uh, uh, the, the places where they come from. So they're called things like, you know, uh, Warwick and Lancaster. And so, of course, they, you know, in so many ways, both literally and, and, and metaphorically, uh, express the whole of the country. So you have this sort of uh, changing of focus in the play from going, zooming in on these personal relationships and then zooming out and seeing what havoc these personal relationships are causing on, on, on the whole of the world. And so there was something about that, uh, that shift in focus and I was thinking, how do you do that in this space? You know, it's a very distinctive space, in many ways a, a challenging space to work in here. It's really big. And so I began to think of, okay, is video a way um, that we can get a certain type of access to the emotions of the characters, a certain type of intimacy um, by getting a camera and projecting it on big screens, um, and that, that might help some of the scenes, and then other scenes, you know, you could play across the whole, the whole stage and use the whole vastness of the landscape of the stage. But that's where it started, but it... it, it the, changed really the use of the video the more it went on the more the video became for me about uh what is seen and what is unseen um and what is secret and what is taboo um there is a lot of there's a big thing in the play uh, a theme in the play i guess about the forbidden and I think particularly about seeing the forbidden, you know. The, right at the start of the play, this character, Gaveston, has this long speech where he talks about a, a myth from Greek mythology, which is the myth of Actaeon. And to cut a long story short, the story of Actaeon is about this hunter, Actaeon, who happens to stumble upon, one day while hunting in the forest, uh, a goddess, uh, Diane or Diana, who is bathing naked. And he sees her and he's transfixed by her. And she sees him, sees him like a kind of peeping Tom, you know. And um, she's so outraged and uh, quite reasonably and offended that this mortal man is looking at her naked that she turns him into a deer and he's hunted by his own dogs and killed. And so there's this motif in the play which is recurrent in yes, in the Edward Gaveston relationship, but in actually a lot of relationships in the play, about how desire for the forbidden, Actian, you know, most obviously Actian's desire for Diana, leads to Actian's destruction. 
But more than that, I think, it's kind of like seeing the forbidden leads to um, uh, destruction. And so this, in the end, how we use the, po- the, the, the video and the show is often to show things which are um, uh, secret or taboo. So the camera allows you, gives you access to something which you perhaps shouldn't normally be seeing, which I think is a big Marlowe thing in the play because... There are many deaths in the play. That's not really spoiling it if you haven't seen it or don't know. Lots of people die. In fact, most people die, and that's not really <laughs> spoiling it. And, and f- Edward II dies in a very you know, uh, infamous um, way. And all the deaths, as written by Marlowe, all the deaths are off stage, apart from Edward's death, which is the most extreme, the most sort of grotesque death you can imagine, really. And so he's playing with this idea of, uh, I'm not going to show you the taboo thing, the death, uh, except I am going to show you the taboo thing. I'm going to show you the most taboo death you can imagine. So this idea of the the seen and the unseen and the forbidden, and that's that's really, in the end, how the video Mm. featured. Um, I think that's terribly interesting about the, the way that the private and public figure in the play, because that was probably the thing that struck me the most about the production, how far those are, those really play off against each other. Um, and, it, and that kind of bears out on, uh, bears on another thing that struck me as very interesting, that this year on this stage, we've seen uh, a, a, an amazing production of Othello that isn't centrally about race. Mm-hmm. And now we see a production of Edward II that isn't centrally about homosexuality. Whereas mm-hmm. for both those plays over the last 30 years, um, there has been a tendency to put those identities mm-hmm. centrally in them. But it seems to me that homosexuality, of course, is very important to Edward II. It can't be avoided. But there is a, a, a bigger picture, shall we say, um, in this. Is that, is that part of your thinking for this production? Uh, yeah, I think so. I think so. You know, um, as you say, the, the fact that there is a a gay relationship, or actually, uh, there's a number of gay relationships uh, in the play. Uh, it's, a, it's a big feature of the play, you know, and sort of completely, of course, outrageous in Marlowe's time, and, 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 and you know, maybe still outrageous uh, in, in, in recent times, uh, in our lifetimes. But I suppose, I, I suppose yeah, I, I saw more in the play than just that. And, and I suppose as well, I think, you know, when you're looking at a, a representation of homosexuality on stage, which, of course, we, we, you know, we see regularly, but it still uh, has the power to be contentious because, there, you know, there are many prejudices and um, tensions in society around homosexuality, which amazingly uh, uh, and sadly still aren't resolved. So there's al- it's always going to be uh, people that, you know, still watching it are going to focus on that a bit. But what I really didn't want to get into was really a situation where all the time I was going, what is this, what is this saying about homosexuality? Right. How am I representing homosexuality? Because uh, I, occasionally I had to ask that question and occasionally I, you know, I talked about it with the creative team and the actors but that really wasn't the focus in the sense that you know if, uh, if I uh, you know was doing a play where a 
heterosexual relationship was at the centre of it. And, you know, in, in many respects, there is a heterosexual relationship at the centre of this play as well, in terms of Mortimer's relationship with Isabella. But I don't spend the whole time going, what does this say about heterosexuality, for maybe understandable reasons. But really what I'm interested in is exploring the relationship in all its complexity and all its light and darkness. And, and the famous gay relationship in this play between Edward II and um, Gaveston has plenty of light and darkness in it. You know, it's a very passionate relationship. It's full of feeling. There are moments of tenderness in it, I think. They, the characters talk to each other in a kind of language that the other characters aren't given access to, so it has a kind of beauty to it. But it's also an incredibly dangerous and destructive relationship, right. you know. Uh, you know, you see that Edward and Gaveston are reunited at the start of the play, and one of the first things they do after a, 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 a reunion which has some, I think, very beautiful writing in it, one of the first things they do is they then go and beat up the Bishop of Coventry and mm. send him to prison to die in chains, mm. which, uh, you know, they have, uh, one can argue, good reason for doing that. But you're immediately going, okay, this relationship yeah. is, is, is exciting, it's romantic, it's passionate, but it's also dangerous and it's also mm. destructive and that's what makes it compelling and exciting and sexy even. Mm. So I didn't want to be depicting that relationship spending the whole time going, oh, is it okay to say this? And maybe if you came in and you were, had certain prejudices against homosexual men, then this might reinforce them. Or, uh, you know, I, as, soon as, you, if, if, as soon as that is your only focus, I think f I can just speak personally. For me, I would worry that I was kind of patronizing the characters by sort of going, oh, you know, we can't really make this as dangerous or exciting or, as, or complex as Marlowe makes it because, you know, might send out the wrong message or the wrong, you know. So that, that, was, that was how I approached it. And, um, but with all these things, you know, uh, to a degree, um, you know, people take away what they bring to it as well, you know. Uh. Well, they're pulling focus more broadly, and this is probably going to be my last question, so do be thinking of your, your questions. Um, just thinking about the kind of political world of the play, because, again, I think that's something that that's very, very clear in this, in this production. Um, I, I said right at the beginning of this, this conversation that, that the play covers a, a huge historical range. It's actually quite hard to work out how much time is passing in the play, but probably quite a lot. It's, it's 20 years, yeah. It's 20 years. But you wouldn't, right. you wouldn't know that from reading the play, actually. No. You know, it feels, could be 20 minutes almost. But one it's of the uh, breathless. effects of that is, uh, absolutely, is that the play is, 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 has in, enormous pace. And in fact, there was a point about 40 minutes in where I kind of thought, We've had 40 minutes and Gaveston has been banished, returned, banished, returned, and threatened with banishment again. Yeah, um, in a way that it almost, I think, begins to almost become farcical. Mm -hmm. I don't mean that in a, in a pejorative way. I think mm -hmm. that's there's an inter interesting dynamic. I, is that something you worked with in... in yeah, yeah I, think, I think the more, you know, going back to what I was saying earlier, when you... I do the thing of writing the things out on the index cards and you look at the story and you look at uh, the scenes and the groupings of the characters. There is so much repetition in the play. Right. And Marlowe is obsessed with repetition. I mean, you've picked up on the main one, the one that's really obvious, I think, from the outside watching it, is, is to do with Gaveston. You know, uh, spoiler alert, I'm afraid, but just to echo what you're saying, Dan. Yeah, that, 
It starts off with Gaveston's return from exile. So he's already, be, he's already been banished and he's in exile. And then he comes back and then they banish him again. And then that, that's overturned. So he comes back and then like you say, yeah, we're gonna, they say we're going to banish him again. So it has this crazy repetition. But this happens a lot in the play, actually. You know, I, I was e even for all the work I'd done, and it's still discovering this in previews, actually, how much repetition there is. It's something that Marlowe really, really plays with. Often at the start of a scene, uh, how to explain this without spoiling it, but th th there's, there's several scenes where he's, he says at the start of the scene, one of the characters will say, look, you know this thing's got to happen, right? We've got to do this thing. Mm. And then the whole scene is this long back and forth, this repetitive argument of this delay, or oh, we can do it, or oh, we're not going to do it, maybe we should do it, maybe I should give up my crown, maybe I shouldn't, maybe we should banish Gaveston, maybe we shouldn't, maybe you are going to kill me, maybe you're not. Mm. Um, and, and there's this, these strange cycles, really, uh, or repetitions, in which often the characters are trying to hold off the inevitable. And that is even more enhanced, I think, in the fact that this is a history play because a lot of people will come to it knowing that Edward II dies and, and, and knowing the manner of his death as well. So the whole play, you know, is written with that in mind. So the whole play then becomes the strange sequence of things that happen before and often repetitive things that happen before the inevitable mm. death of Edward. And this idea of repetition and human beings being doomed to repeat things mm. and struggle as we all do against the inevitable and struggle against our own characters and I guess fundamentally struggle against the fact we're all going to die, you know, spoiler alert, we're all going to die, <laughs> um, I think is a major preoccupation of Marlowe and that idea of repetition I think has something to do with hell, I think, that he's interested in, of us being doomed to relive and revisit things um, and I think sometimes those repetitions are tragic and sometimes they are comic because they are absurd. You, you know, we, mm. we, 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 we all have those experiences. Mm. How am I doing this again? How are we here again? How right. have I made that mistake again? You know? And I think that idea of repetition is something that's, that's uh, core to the play, yeah. And very distinctive of the play, very unusual, I think. I d uh, this is probably a completely irrelevant association I had, but I did think a couple of times of something like The Thick of It on TV, yep. those sort of absurd farcical policy reversals that are suddenly forced on people yeah, through well situations not of their making. Yeah, we talked about that. I mean, I was saying to right. the, the video designer, I said, oh, maybe it's a bit like The Thick of It. Right. And because he was American, he didn't know what that was. So. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, yeah, you, I mean, you will see in the play, there is a long sequence that's very early on in the play, which runs for probably about, I don't know, it's quite a long time, maybe about 40 minutes, these two scenes that run back to back, which are all about these uh, barons trying to work out how to get rid of Gaveston. And, yep. they, and they come up with this sort of political solution that they're going to create this document, which they're going to force the king to sign, and he's going to have to exile Gaveston. And they, you know, to cut a long story, well, uh, you'll see what happens, uh, or you may have seen already. But it doesn't work. It all falls apart in, in a way that's just completely <laughs> crazy. It's hilarious, really. They spend such a long time. They put such incredible effort into putting this document together. And in the end, it all just counts for nothing. And uh, there's something of the, the thick of it in that. And there's something really that Marlowe's looking at about the absurdity and the ineffectiveness often of human action, right. which is a, is a difficult thing to look at. It's a difficult thing to 
deal with, I think. That's great, thank you. I'm afraid we are out of time, but can I ask you to join me in thanking Joe Hillgibbons. Thank